It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. The movie A League of Their Own is one of the most beloved baseball movies of all time. Today's guest Aaron Carlson takes us on a journey into the story behind the all-female baseball league and the making of Penny Marshall's film. Aaron is a culture and entertainment journalist and the author of three Hollywood history books, including I'll Have What She's Having and Queen Merrill. Her new book is No Crying in Baseball, the inside story of A League of Their Own, Big Stars, Dugout Drama, and A Home Run for Hollywood. Welcome, Erin. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So, Erin, for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with the film A League of Their Own, can you very briefly give us a background about the story? Sure. A League of Their Own um, is the fictionalized story of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. It was a league that um, existed during World War II, and it involved all women teams. (laughs) Such a rarity in sports, especially baseball and male-dominated sports. So the league, you know, faded into obscurity after it ended in 1954 for a variety of reasons, one of them being the boys came home from the war. So the women, you know, went back to their daily lives. So the league, like, um, it, you know, totally, like I said, faded into obscurity, um, left the history books, And nobody really knew about it until the 1980s when the players began to reunite. Uh, PBS made a documentary about the league called A League of Their Own that Penny Marshall, the director, saw. And, you know, she being a big tomboy, um, self-described tomboy growing up in the Bronx in the 50s. You know, she loved sports. She loved baseball. She identified with um, these women that she saw in the documentary. They were funny and bawdy. And, you know, everything that Penny was in real life. So she wanted to pay tribute to them. So she had a um, feature film script worked out. um, And miraculously, that script made it into production, uh, an unusual film for the time. And it became a smash success at the box office. Mm -hmm. A League of Their Own made more money than the baseball movies we also love. So Field of Dreams, Bull Durham, the natural. Um, so it was like, and it remains the most successful baseball movie of all time. So it was really a genre outlier and remains beloved after all these years. And that is a very long answer. Well, you know, and the movie had a really unlikely cast of characters. I mean, you had Gina Davis and Tom Hanks, but then you had Rosie O'Donnell and Madonna. What made Penny go with those types of actors? Well, Penny was amazing at casting people, amazing. She had a good eye for um, actors who could improvise, like Tom Hanks. Mm -hmm. Um, Tom Hanks would go off script and do funny things and do unexpected things that Penny loved to work with and include in the film. 
in her films. Um, she had worked with him on Big, so she knew that she wanted him for Jimmy Dugan, kind of this lovingly uh, coach, you know, who um, is drunken, kind of has been, you know, from the major leagues and now has been demoted to coach women's baseball. So she thought that he would be great for that. Gina Davis replaced Deborah Winger <laughs> in the part of Dottie Hinson, the best player on the league. Um, Deborah left the movie early on because she did not want Madonna <laughs> to be in the movie. She's like, you're going to make this into an Elvis movie, Penny. And Penny was like, no one tells me how to cast my movie. So Jad Barr walked away with $3 million, you know, a pay to play. And um, she was okay with that, <laughs> obviously. Gina then replaced her and Gina did not have any baseball experience. Um, she was not an athlete growing up, even though she was six feet tall. So she really had to hone her skills uh, in a short time over the four months of filming. So she was good enough that she had learned how to catch a pop fly behind her back. But she, al she was also confident in her limited ability. She knew what she could and couldn't do. Whereas a lot of her co-stars were like, I have a double, but I don't want to use my double. I can do this stunt. Gina was like, no, you can do my stunt. She had, like, a number of stunt uh, doubles, uh, men and women. But, um, you know, she was extremely excellent at projecting how to play movie baseball. She had this steely game face, this fierce batting stance. You know, Rosie O'Donnell called her Gina the Machina. You know, <laughs> and in the scene where Rosie throws that, you know, Rosie throws a ball at her, um, it's a hostile throw. Gina catches it with her bare hand, <laughs> and, you know, you wouldn't know that that ball was anything less than a hard ball, but in reality, ball was made of foam, and it was thrown to her from a short distance off camera. You I know, you're, you're right, Erin, because you were saying that Penny was a genius in her casting. You know, sometimes you watch a movie, and you say, oh, you know, that part, somebody should have been doing this, and somebody would have been better there, but they really were perfectly cast. Absolutely. And um, I think that's, um, to me, that's 50% of a good film. <laughs> the other 50% is the script. I think and the script was so good. And you need actors that can run with the material. That no crying in baseball scene where Jimmy is yelling. It's brilliant. At Rockford Peach. Yeah. Poor Evelyn Gardner. No crying, you know, because he doesn't like what she did on the field. And he's like, um, he just goes crazy like one of those little league dads that you know i saw growing up that was yelling <laughs> at their son mm -hmm. <laughs> that's what i think he was doing he was doing a bit on that and they did that scene over you know many 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 takes they had the camera on tom and they had the camera on biddy shram who played the recipient of his you know verbal barrage and she cried every time you know on cue like she she was um excellent in that as well but she also did not know that the scene that she was supposed to film the scene that day because production was so chaotic often the um, actresses who played the Rockford Peaches would be sitting in their trailers all day not knowing what they were going to shoot so that day um, someone knocked on uh, Biddy's honey wagon door and was like okay it's time to film your big scene the scene that we cast you for and she was not prepared so those tears were, you know, tears of anxiety as well. 
Why was there so much chaos on the set? What was happening? And, um, you know, is that just Penny's process? Oh, yeah. Uh, Penny Marshall ran. um, This was not an elegant set. (laughs) This was um, big and sprawling. And there were hundreds of cast and crew members. And one of the Rockford Peaches, um, I call them Rockford Peaches as if they were in real life. Um, The actresses, one of the actresses who played Rockford Peach, um, the actress who played Rockford Peach, Alice Gaspers, she um, paired this movie to a war movie, like, and they were all platoon members. Uh, and often you didn't know what was going on because it was just too big. <laughs> so she was like, we were, we were, the peaches were props that talked. So they spent a lot of time filming action shots and, you know, baseball vignettes. And they didn't know how Penny would piece that all together or if it was really going to, you know, end up in the movie theater. Megan Cavanaugh, who played Marvin Hoot, or who played Marla Hooch, um, said, is this going straight to video? People just didn't know. So when they saw the finished film in 1992, they were delighted. They're like, oh, this is a movie. But Penny Marshall had a thread in her head that only she could see. Um, she was not the best communicator. And um, she was rather passive on set. Whereas a lot of directors, um, I'm thinking Jim Cameron for some Mm -hmm. reason, a lot of male directors have a sense of control and a God complex. Everything is top down and they control everything from um, the lighting to the setup um, to the costumes. And Penny had a, she did have a tight control more so than people uh, notice, but she was also just, um, she had this, there was a collective feeling on set that um, Penny did not have a God complex, you know, and that made people um, feel comfortable to do their jobs really well, uh, to wear multiple hats. Uh, Tom Hanks was not just an actor in the movie. Penny let him direct the C camera that shot scoreboard footage (laughs) because he wanted to direct in the future. And he did. He directed that thing you do. So it was just um, a feeling of chaos, but also, fun and experimentation and creativity and that was all because of penny everyone had a great time on this movie even though parts of it were torturous Mm -hmm. to participate in it's kind of like life was imitating art because what they were going through as a team was torturous so it's like they were bringing those relationships into the film absolutely um and i'm thinking of uh rosie o'donnell and madonna they had this amazing bond mm-hmm. off screen well they were they were best friends weren't screen. they back then i don't know if they still are but they were very close they're still very close and um on in the movie <laughs> everyone called them row and mo <laughs> penny was like rosie you teach madonna how to play ball madonna you teach rosie how to set her hair so they were written together as comic relief because Madonna at that time in her career was not known for her acting. Let's just put it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, She was a brilliant performer, but she hadn't found a movie that really um, leveraged that leveraged her shtick, her persona in a way uh, that, you know, um, made her pop on screen. I mean, she was great in Desperately Seeking Susan, but she was also so um, her character, I think, was a 
I don't want to go into film theory and all that, <laughs> but it was more of a projection of the main character played by Rosanna Arquette. But all the way May Mortobito, the brassiest Rockford Peach, that you know that was Madonna's character. She was a um, streetwise, cheeky, funny, tough, cool version of Madonna. So Madonna was in essence playing herself. And she looked really tough and cool, and she slid into bases. Truly, she did. She danced with Jitterbug. Um, she wore amazing vintage clothes. She had funny um, one-liners. I mean, I would argue that A League of Their Own was arguably Madonna's best work, mm-hmm. other than when she played herself in the documentary Truth or Dare. But, you know, she felt like she was underutilized. She did not like the um, sitting around and waiting (laughs) because Madonna is, she's proactive. She always likes to be doing something and she didn't like that aspect of making movies. So one day she wrapped herself on the set as an actor. You're not supposed to wrap yourself. Other people tell you, you can go home, (laughs) but Madonna went back to her rental in Indiana and, um, Penny was like, Mo, where's Mo? This is my Penny impression. And everyone's like, well, she went back to her rental house. Penny was livid. She started yelling. She's like, I'll write her out of the movie. I'll make her pregnant. And, you know, she kept repeating that. Word got back to Madonna. And when Penny got home later that night, there was a very contrite voicemail from Madonna. Mm-hmm. <laughs> saying that she would never wrap herself again. You know, there were um, some moments of drama on set, but it, it, you know, a lot of that was um, due to the rigors of filming and having to adjust that and adjust to that. And uh, Madonna was, um, um, you know, building her empire, as she would tell people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was um, in the process of um, creating her own record label imprint, at, you know, Maverick, um, and then, you know, and she was in talks to play Evita in the movie adaptation of the musical. And she was writing her um, coffee table erotica book called Sex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she was doing a lot of things and she felt the movie was holding her back. But when she eventually saw it, she she did like it. Yeah. Which was a big win because Madonna is a tough critic. <laughs> Why do you think after some uh, 30 years that this movie is still home run? Why do you think it has stood the test of time? Oh, my gosh. Um, first of all, um, it's a really, really funny script by um, Babalu Mandel and Lowell Gans, um, two of the best comedy writers ever. Uh, it had wonderful performances, especially by Tom Hanks and Gina Davis and it's just an example 30 years later of really excellent and epic filmmaking. You know, it has a universality to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it brims with a love of baseball. You know, even if you don't know about baseball, you see this movie and you end up loving it. Right. <laughs> you know, um, there's such a passion and joy for the sport. And it's also about something, you know, real, something um, more than just baseball. It's the history, the fictionalized history of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, this obscure women's baseball league that nobody knew about 
until Penny made a movie about it. Um, and the women of that league and the you know, surviving members are so grateful for this movie because um, it made them feel that they were important. They, you know, contributed to the sport. Um, it made them feel that they just weren't a footnote in some, you know? Right. Well, they were trailblazing women. You know, they, they broke down gender barriers. Oh, absolutely. At the time, though, in the 40s and 50s, they never felt that they were doing that, you know, or they didn't voice that or it didn't, you know, um, it wasn't a thing that crossed their minds. Uh, the league was invented in 1943 by uh, Philip K. Wrigley, the chewing gum magnet of Chicago, mm-hmm. Wrigley the Field. owner of the Chicago Cubs, <laughs> to keep the sport of baseball alive during World War II as all the young boys, you know, were leaving the minors and going off to fight the war. So he was like, I'm going to try this, like, women's baseball gimmick, you know, fill smaller ball fields, you know, try to get an audience. And um, so the women didn't feel like they were feminist trailblazers. They really felt like they were at the forefront of, you know, they were at the front lines doing their patriotic duty. Like maybe they weren't off fighting Hitler, but they were keeping this beloved American pastime alive. And they really were. Uh, thousands and thousands of people went to go see them. And at first they laughed at them because here were these women, (laughs) you know, behaving rebelliously, I believe in a macho sphere, you know, treading on macho turf. And so um, you had a lot of men spectators coming and laughing at these women, but then they kept coming back because they, they learned that the players were really good. Like they could play ball and women could play ball and um, for a short time in American history, they had their own league, and it was fantastic mm-hmm. <laughs> while well, it lasted. So the women, while they were living it, they weren't thinking about the impact they were making. But in the years that followed, what type of an impact do you think they've had on young girls? Um, that's a good question. Um, so in the 1980s, if we're flashing back mm-hmm. <laughs> decades after the league dissolved, the women started reuniting, and then word got out. You know, reporters sniffed a hot human interest angle, a good story. PBS made the documentary. And then um, despite all that coverage in that that decade, the movie, (laughs) not until the movie was made, did their story, you know, their story have greater awareness. More people knew about the league thanks to that movie. Um, So to answer their impact, their impact was immeasurable, even the fictional versions of themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not the real women, but like the Gina Davises and the Lori Petties and the Madonnas um, made a huge impact. The year after A League of Their Own hit theaters in 1993, there was a noticeable spike, like a really big spike in the number of high school girls who signed up for softball. And I called that the League of Their Own effect because for the first time, I think if you were a young girl athlete and you were in that sweet spot, that mar- that uh, target market, you know, very young girls sitting in the theater and you're used to you're used to watching boy movies, you know, Stand By Me, um, The Sandlot came later. But that was representative of what girls saw on the big screen, not teams of girls, teams of boys. So if you were in the, if you were like 11 or 12 and you were sitting in the theater to see a league of their own, 
a, the movie was a revelation to you because you had um, girls. I don't want to call them girls, but um, a lot of the actresses were in their early 20s. Um, you had women, you know, acting funny and loud and opinionated and amazing and just all of the things that girls weren't allowed to be on screen at the time, but were in real life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you had that female friendship and camaraderie. You had the victory song um, that I always sang with my friends at recess. And um, for, I was not an athlete growing up. I was more artistically inclined, but for young athletes, the character of Dottie was a revelation mm-hmm. because for the first time they had seen a character character who represented them or, um, you know, and provided an example of what they could be in the future. Um, Dottie did not throw like a girl in quotes. I hate that phrase to this day. She threw like an athlete. She demonstrated competence and excellence on the field. So Abby Wambach, um, the World Cup soccer champ, (laughs) and then um, multiple gold medalists told me that Dottie was the reason she ended up playing soccer (laughs) not baseball but soccer because she's like okay this woman you know takes no prisoners she's confident and she inspired abby to lean into her greatness and once again that book is no crying in baseball the inside story of a league of their own erin where can our listeners go to get more information about you and your work uh you can um go to my website at erin lcarlson.com. Erin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Joan. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, CYACYL.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in.